Welcome back to Season 3 of Clout Asia. For our first episode, I am joined by Penny Burt, the former CEO of AsiaLink, Australia's leading institution for driving Asia engagement and building Asia capability. Born and raised in her early years in Penang, Malaysia, Penny's calling to Southeast Asia started long before her extensive career across government, not-for-profit and corporate. Penny's clout speaks for itself. A former senior diplomat, she represented Australia in Singapore, Malaysia and Indonesia. She has held leadership positions with global multinationals in the region and currently is based in Singapore at a US fintech unicorn. In my conversation with Penny, she helped break down to first principles, the importance of learning language, understanding culture, and why Australians should not just be thinking of Asia as it related to our trading goods, but also as a destination to invest and to engage in the services and digital economy. Welcome to Cloud Asia, where we ask our guests to take us on their journey to Asia capability to help us understand what being an Aussie with clout is all about. I'm Lucy Du, and here is Penny Burt. Welcome, Penny. It's so great to have you on Clout Asia. Lucy, it's really great to be here and so nice to get to spend time with you. I'm really excited about this initiative. Thank you so much, and I've been very much looking forward to our chat as you have had an incredible career to date, spanning not-for-profit, government, technology, corporate, consulting, you know, the list goes on and on. Maybe we can start right from the beginning. How did your Asia journey start for you? Great question. And Lucy, whenever people talk about my career these days, it just makes me feel like I've been around for a really long time. A lot of people don't realize this, but I was actually born in Malaysia. I was born in Penang when my parents were on posting in Penang. And I was very fortunate. My father was actually in the military. But as a child, I frequently traveled with them in the region. And my father and my mother both had a passion for staying engaged after they'd lived in Malaysia stay engaged. They had friends all around the region. So I grew up really in a family that had ties to Asia that gave us plenty of opportunities to be in the region when we were young. And when I was in my teens, having grown up in a family that was full of military people and civil servants and diplomats, I decided that I wanted to become a diplomat. So everything I did was focused on joining the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. I worked really hard at school. I took languages. Foreign Affairs was actually just merging with the Department of Trade as I was in the middle of my university career. So I focused very much on my economics degree, and I was very fortunate to be accepted into DFAT after my first degree. And it was really funny. I was deeply passionate about working on Asia, but my first role in DFAT was actually working on multilateral trade. 
And I said to them, no, 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 no. I don't want to work on trade. I'd actually like to go and work on Asia. And they said, no, you're working on trade precisely because you decided to write your honours thesis on trade. So enough already. That's how my love for Asia kind of kicked off was with my family and having been born in Malaysia. And I'm just going to fast forward a minute and say, when the opportunity came early in my career to start working on Asia, I moved into DFAT's Southeast Asia division. And when I applied for my first posting, I applied to go to Malaysia. Because I always, I was so curious after having been a kid there, I'd never lived there again. Uh, my best friend at university was Malaysian. Her father was a very famous Malaysian diplomat. I had always wanted to go and discover where I was born. And abracadabra, I got the posting. And that was my very first job, living and working in the region. That's incredible. And how long was your career in DFAT? About 20 years. And most of it was spent in Southeast Asia, with the exception of postings in Geneva in the UN and some time in New York. I have to be honest, I was always excited about the opportunity for Asia. But when I joined the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, I joined with French, German and Italian as my languages, because in my generation, actually, they didn't offer Asian languages at school. And while I'd had plenty of experience in the region, I didn't actually have a lot of role models beyond my immediate family and my parents, friends and colleagues who had had big careers in Asia. It sounds linear and incredibly well planned, but there was a bit of, it's a little bit unclear for me going in because I didn't feel that I had all the capability. I had lots of passion and lots of excitement, but not necessarily all the skills. I want to fast forward a little bit more because your Korean DFAT then pivoted still in Asia, but into the private sector. In terms of um, pivots in my career, I did spend most of my DFAT career serving in Southeast Asia. I was posted in Indonesia, in Malaysia, in Singapore. I worked in the Southeast Asia division. I worked as an Asia advisor to the foreign minister. So I really did hone down and invest. When it became time for a career pivot, I had all that knowledge and skill in the region, which I was able to take into opportunities in the corporate sector. One of your nominations for people, you nominated Peter Magis. He's the former secretary of the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. And you said to me earlier that he really influenced the way that you thought about how Australia fit in the world and Asia. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? I was very fortunate, actually, to serve in government at the same time as Peter Varghese, who is the Secretary of the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade and also head of something we call the Office of National Assessments. And Peter, while many people don't focus on this, is actually Asian-Australian and devoted his entire career to diplomacy, government, and to deeply understanding the world and Australia's place in it. Peter always inspired me because he had this wonderful balance between being deeply sort of analytical, 
never quite an academic, but deeply analytical and knowledgeable about the region and his time in the Office of National Assessments, I think, gave great expression to that, at the same time as being a highly skilled practitioner on the front line. And, you know, he was, I mean, our High Commissioner to India, for example. And I was always really inspired by someone who, with such deep intellect and grace, was really thoughtful and intentional all the time about Australia's place in the world and about how we prosecuted our policy agenda. Was there anything in particular, any examples that you can think of in the way that he had changed a pre-existing assumption that you had about how policy was made in Asia or how Australian policymakers had viewed Asia? I think more broadly, rather than pointing to something specific, Peter's mindset more broadly around the way that Australia needed to forge its own independent foreign policy and foreign economic policy was particularly inspiring to me. Peter also, of course, led the work that developed Australia's India strategy, and it was a really interesting piece of economic strategy work that really paved the way for what we see now, the entire India-Australia FTA, the um, Comprehensive Strategic Partnership, and that ability to take a body of knowledge and experience and then hone down on how can you actually change mindset around an opportunity? What is it that the Australian community, and in this case, Australian business, really needed to know? And how do you kind of point them in a new direction when traditionally, in the case of India, Australian business have been enormously reluctant to get engaged? And that was a bit of a, a watershed, quite frankly, in contemporary Australian foreign and economic policy, but how we thought about the India-Australia engagement. It's one example. And I should actually take this opportunity to say, when I was CEO of AsiaLink, leading AsiaLink, I was very pleased that Peter accepted the invitation from the University of Melbourne to become the chair of the AsiaLink Advisory Council. It's amazing. It's a really pertinent point that you mentioned about forging our own standalone policies when it relates to um, whether it's trade or foreign policy. Right now, there's a lot of discourse around what the Australian identity means and how we should define our Australian identity, which as a second-generation Chinese-Australian, I really relate to. We have a small country, but not that small. It's 25 million people, but we have so many different cultures and heritages represented in addition to the First Nations people. So, you know, I saw a stat that around 50% of Australians were born, were either born overseas or has a parent who was born overseas. That's such a large proportion. That's really high. I think many of us don't think of that and both of us uh, are not born in Australia. And so I think that's a really kind of important point in terms of how people like Peter and yourself and others are contributing outside of their professional careers and work in the community on shaping that Australian identity as well. 
Lucy, you make a really good point. And I think we should call out much more explicitly the value of our multicultural community and the diversity that we have. We have an enormous Asian Australian community who are incredibly successful, incredibly active in the community, and who can actually, quite frankly, help us straighter, better navigate the opportunity in the region. One of the um, very exciting initiatives that I was involved in at AsiaLink was the creation of the Asian um, Australian Leadership Initiative and the 40 under 40 um, young Asian Australian Leaders Awards that you know very well, Lucy. And quite frankly, just calling out and celebrating the opportunity that our Asian Australian community affords the rest of us, whether that's, you know, um, access to shared experience or access to language learning opportunities or something that's really important to me, understanding of cultural context and cross-cultural capability and the ability to engage with our Asian Australian community to, to build that muscle around the broader community. And why do you think understanding the cultural dynamics is really important when it comes to interacting with the region or interacting with the Asian Australian community in Australia? It's, it's at one level, it's such a self-evident question. And at another level, sort of when you ask me, I think, well, of course you would um, want to understand culture. But I think it's worth noting that culture and cultural context is, is so important in Asia in ways that we don't always understand in Australia because we very seldom reflect in Australia on our own culture and our own cultural mores. So we also talk about Asian culture quite often and we don't understand that, in fact, there is so much diversity, so much specialization and so much, um, what's the word for it, richness in across Asia that this idea that there is Australian culture and Asian culture is quite bizarre. So um, I think to be successful in the region, understanding that diversity, that richness, and the important role that culture plays in forging relationships and relationships which then underpin opportunity, business, politics, and every other aspect of engagement is it's vital. And I, I don't know how to explain that any better. Maybe, maybe a good, maybe a little story would illustrate that. You know, I've seen um, in my, across my career in Asia, I've seen Australians in meetings and Americans actually, <laughs> but particularly Australians, not understand the cultural context and therefore not achieve their objectives. Just with really, really simple things. So for example, um, a senior business person walking into a meeting with the governor of the Bank of Thailand. And while he'd had a very careful briefing on Thai culture, actually not 
understanding the way in which a meeting should naturally unfold at that level in Thailand meant that um, after sitting down, instead of exchanging pleasantries and contextualizing the discussion and offering some very respectful comments about the context in Thailand, the individual concerned basically talked about the company and then made all of our requests, which were slightly couched as demands, before the governor was even allowed to open his mouth. And the individual concerned spoke for more than 10 minutes, at which time the governor said, thank you very much. I've heard what you had to say. I'm afraid I have another appointment now and left. And it was one of those situations where we therefore did not get what we needed from that meeting at all. In fact, really upset the governor and were hugely disrespectful. But in Australian culture, it's perfectly acceptable to go into a meeting and set up all about your company, why you're there and what you want. It's just without understanding that that is not an appropriate way of prosecuting. It was just a lose-lose situation. And it did take a long time to recover the relationship. I can imagine. And maybe, you know, culture is somewhat synonymous with relationship building. Yes. Being able to have a better understanding of different cultures and how they operate in different contexts helps with those connections. And I know you spent a lot of time whilst you were CEO of AsiaLink and you know, kind of engaging and creating those opportunities and those educational initiatives for Australians in terms of being able to build stronger connections and ultimately be able to do business in Asia as well. How important do you think are those educational initiatives, whether it's programs or awards or others, or is it really about spending time and exchange and really being in market and in country for Australians? I think actually it's a combination of both. I think there are great programs like the AsiaLink Leaders Program that deeply focus on building the knowledge. And the knowledge is actually really important, not just the cultural context, but the knowledge of the history, the politics, the economy, all vital, actually, the um, Asia cultural capability. So programs like that, really helpful. But at the same time, I think there is almost no alternative to boots on the ground. And that's where programs like the um, New Colombo Plan are so fantastic and so successful in creating opportunities for young Australians to either study or work in the region and kind of providing support for that mobility where people really early on in their professional lives or still in their education journey can get on the ground and experience firsthand. I think quite frankly, the best combination is a bit of both and that it's not one is, is better than the other, but the more you can bring together both, um, the more rounded you're going to be and the more successful you're going to be. I think 
Um, I would also call out language study. One of the things I've been so disappointed about is that the number of Australians studying Asian languages has continued to decline. We have the lowest number of people studying Indonesian language when Indonesia is our largest and most immediate neighbour, an incredibly important emerging economy, so significant for Australia. Fewer Australians are learning Indonesian now than in the 1970s. Wow. That is so shocking. Um, The number of people learning Mandarin Chinese. Hard to get an accurate figure, but, you know, the figure that's been trailed out for many, many years is for non-ethnically Chinese Australians, the number who are actually fluent Mandarin speakers is just in the hundreds. And that's, that's inconceivable to me. So I think as we talk about educational opportunities, there are ways in which you know you can build Asia capability by doing courses like the Asian Link Leaders Program. There are lots of other great courses, by the way, offered at the universities and by people like the Asia Society. There is the on-the-ground experience that you can get and the great support. But equally, across all of that, studying language. I try to maintain my language study, you know, still after 30 years living and working in Asia because I just think language is so essential to navigating relationships. It's an interesting point about language. Do you have any thoughts or kind of guesses on as to why language study, especially Asian languages, has been on a decline for Australians? You know, I wish I I really wish that I knew what the answer was because if I knew what the answer was, I would be on this massive campaign personally and professionally to turn this around. And I have spent a lot of time, including in my um, role at Asia Link, in trying to help the community think that through. I think there have been three big drivers. Number one, um, there's been insufficient funding for languages and insufficient focus put on language within the Australian education curriculum. And that's not pointing fingers at anyone, but really the lack of opportunity has meant it's been quite hard. As I said before, I would have studied Asian language at school, but it simply wasn't available. When I was looking at schools in Australia for my daughter, I was actually trying to find somewhere where they had high-level Mandarin available. Really hard, actually, surprisingly hard. So there's availability. Second, I think interest level, people are only going to invest deeply in language where they can see that there is a return on investment. And it's a bit chicken and egg, but the lack of opportunities for young Australians to then move into careers where language is going to be useful Sure, joining the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, that's really obvious, but having a big corporate career, not obvious where deep Asian language capability is going to be immediately useful to you. So big chicken and egg, we don't see the opportunity, therefore we don't invest, but because we haven't invested, really hard to create, you know, the kind of business opportunities that we should have as Australia in the region. 
So chicken and egg opportunity related to career. And I think the third thing is, and it sounds a little bit um, a bit obvious, but the beyond the reward, um, the reward recognition opportunity, the ability, uh, the respect in the community, and really the ability to use your language capability, which should be there given the multicultural context we have, which we were talking about earlier. But it's just not as easy to constantly use your language capability in Australia. If you think, if you're European, you live in Europe, you automatically speak three languages or your um Singaporean, every day you navigate, you know, up to three languages in every interaction that you have. And, you know, for someone like me living and working in the region, I'm working in Jakarta using my Indonesian one week. I'm in Japan the next week using my somewhat rusty Japanese. But it's an automatic opportunity. So I'll just stop there. You know, I want to bring it to your point about career and those opportunities right so I think that is a big factor especially for emerging Australian leaders or professionals young professionals who are starting out or in their mid-career when they're looking at ways to invest in themselves to make them more employable language or Asia capability is often not put as a priority in my experience Definitely not. You know, also amongst, speaking of Asian Australians or Chinese Australians, myself included, you know, I learnt Mandarin from a very young age. I was very fortunate too because of my family and my parents made it a very clear point for me to read, write, speak Mandarin. That was less of a career perspective and a career opportunity kind of angle, but more from a family angle. But I didn't really realize those opportunities from a career perspective or professionally or as it relates to the bilateral relationship until very much later in my career. Um, and it, you know, I kind of had thought, thinking back, if I had realized that linkage earlier on, perhaps I would have been able to leverage it in an even, you know, kind of more impactful way. Um, But going back to, you know, spending time in Asia, you spend a lot of time in Southeast Asia, you now work for and you have worked for large technology companies. It's very much private sector, corporate doing business. How how is language utilised amongst Australians or amongst English speakers um, when it relates to doing business in Asia? How important is that as you experience both in your role or others around you? I think language is really important and it's it's really important in three ways. Number one, language actually allows you to deeply understand cultural context and business context and um, lost in translation is actually a real issue when you're trying to do business in the region. So it it provides context. Secondly, um, it if you don't have fluency, 
it actually, even just at the most superficial level, helps you, helps open doors and begin to create trust in relationships. You know, going back to Thailand, I only speak about 10 sentences of Thai, but I can deploy my 10 sentences of Thai and my knowledge of how to hold my body, how to why when I walk into a room and what not to do in a way that the language and that culture automatically builds a foundation of trust from which I can then navigate. So number one, you know, it's actually context. Number two, it's relationships. And number three, and this this actually is really important as the technology grows and changes, um, it actually allows you to function in your day job in a way that is hugely impactful. One of the fascinating things as um, AI in particular is making um, translation much easier online, simultaneous translation, ability to navigate in a, a second language environment online. That is quite frankly, really speeding the opportunity. I mean, I literally operate fairly continuously with our Japan team. They write to me in Japanese. I write to them in English. It's fine. Google Translate's a great thing, but it's getting better all the time. Um, you know, I might receive um, an email from the Japanese FinTech Association. It will be in Japanese. It's not a barrier to me that my Japanese is not perfect anymore because the technology tools help me very quickly, you know, translate and understand what's going on. I think that in my lifetime, that has been such an enormous change. And now, like you say, if you've taken, using technology, you've removed some of that barrier as it relates to language. Absolutely. No longer an excuse to say. I don't speak the language. Yeah. I can't do business so how you know what are some of the other challenges or opportunities that you've seen um, for Australians when they're doing business in China uh, or not China but when they're doing business in Asia you know, what how are we uniquely placed where we are in the region as it relates to Americans, for example, or Europeans, you know, what are, what are our kind of real strengths here? So I think, I mean, it's, it's worth almost going back to first principles because people often forget, why are we doing business in Asia? Quite frankly, you know, largest population pool in the world, um, three of the, you know, well, three of the five largest economies in the world, fastest growing populations, fastest growing um, economies and GDP and fastest growing consuming class. So the opportunity is profound, but often we don't actually even talk about that in Australia anymore. We just, oh yeah, you know, Asia. And our business still tends to focus, particularly in terms of investment as distinct from trade on the US and Europe. Uh, so amongst our top trading partners, yes, we very definitely have Asia in there and continue to be dominated by trade with China. I think it's seven out of our 10 top trading partners are Asian. But if you look at investment, which is a very different way of doing business, 
much deeper engagement, um, seven out of our top investment destinations are not Asia. So it's sort of back to front. We still invest more in New Zealand than we do in Indonesia. Um, and not that New Zealand's not a great place, but it's a tiny population and it's not, you know, a high growth economy in the way that Indonesia is for the future. So in terms of opportunity, Asia is an opportunity. We have huge complementarities between what we have available in Australia and what those markets need. And we are very fortunate, but Australia's great strengths in commodities, in food production, in metals, in mining, all of that might be old economy, but it's still incredibly profoundly helpful. And the demand, particularly for value-added products, when we think about that, um, in the food sector, in the health sector, transformed um, mining and minerals, and when we think about rare earths, for example, all of that is going to continue to underpin a very strong set of opportunities. But I think the challenge for Australia is understanding that as Asia becomes more sophisticated, the emergence of a really vibrant services economy and digital economy all around the region means that there is huge opportunity through the lens of particularly technology where Australia is not really playing strongly yet. And that requires us to take a very different lens to the way that we engage. Traditionally, commodities kind of dig them up or you grow them, you put them on a boat, goodbye, like it's kind of done. But to engage deeply in either the services economy or the digital economy means boots on the ground. It means much more sophisticated knowledge of consumers, consumer preferences, context, culture, trends, and actually navigating in a whole different way. It's a much harder way of doing, doing business than pop it on a ship and kiss goodbye. Absolutely. And in reverse, I'm sitting in Asia, how are businesses um, looking at Australia in terms of whether it's our talent, our expertise, our products? You know, how is Australia viewed to Southeast Asia and Singapore? Um, I think Australia is viewed as, you know, still very much a source of um a source of inputs, a source of, you know, primary commodities. It's very well regarded through the lens for education and tourism, which is very positive. And we see Asian investment into Australia has gone through very different phases. So you've seen quite a lot of investment in infrastructure, particularly out of Singapore into Australia. You've seen investment into um, including from the Philippines, quite frankly, into the agricultural sector and food, a lot of investment in real estate. Um, I think over time, we're beginning to get a slightly different perspective from the tech sector and from the, um, from the VC community in Asia who are interested in Australia's growing digital economy capability. When we think about it, you know, Australia's really shifted. We now have these amazing technology champions like Atlassian and Canva who are world leading 
is some really interesting startup propositions and a very vibrant startup sector. And I think that that is beginning to attract quite a lot of attention. And then beyond that, um, I know in the last few years, there's been quite a lot of interest in specific sectors like health tech that Australia is becoming incredibly well known for. Still very niche, but that whole shift away from we're investing in the farm um, to we're investing in knowledge. And I would say um, the perception of, of Australians is generally very positive. I think people view Australians as, um, in contrast to the past, as being hardworking, very adaptable, culturally very open and willing to learn, willing to engage. And I feel that we're very welcome, actually, in the region. You talk a little bit about the technology and the digital economy. Um, it sounds like it's definitely an emerging trend, if not already a huge trend in Asia, in Southeast Asia. Where, How does that impact or how should Australians, whether it's as individuals or as companies, think about you know, leveraging that or being able to you know, capitalise on this trend towards more AI, more technology, what can we do? I think the first thing is build understanding of what is actually happening. And the region is moving so fast in the digital economy space, it's breathtaking. So it's actually, there are an enormous set of resources available, great reports. In fact, Google has just launched its annual state of the regional digital economy in Southeast Asia report, excellent. build the knowledge and understanding of exactly what's happening because in many ways um, the region is far more sophisticated than Australia in this area. Secondly, um, boots on the ground. It was great at the recent Singapore FinTech Festival to see delegations from almost every state in Australia come up to see companies who had really interesting propositions kind of come and meet with people from across the globe, meet with, you know, potential Asian investors and partners and showcase, but actually get to know what's going on in the rest of the world. So that sort of engaging and coming up to the region and, you know, availing yourself of these amazing opportunities. Um, India has got a great fintech festival that's led by the Indian government and the central bank. I think they actually attracted... I think the number is more than 20,000 you know, participants in that last year. Just phenomenal. What an opportunity. And the Singapore FinTech Festival, by the way, was more than 60,000 participants. Um, the third thing I think that Australians can do to better kind of navigate the opportunity is when they're thinking, if they're startups or um, they might be in... Um, in the technology space more broadly, as they're thinking about developing new technologies and applications, thinking global instead of local first and thinking about being born global. So instead of coming up with a great little proposition that fits in Australia, helicopter out and think, how is this going to land in the next 5, 10, 15 markets? not just the US, but how is it that people in Indonesia or Thailand or China actually engage in the digital economy? 
Um, how do they engage in the online economy? How am I going to kind of build my proposition in a way that fits neatly in there rather than, oh, here I am in Australia, I'm building for Australian consumers, maybe Americans, this is how we engage with the internet, that must be how everybody does it. And then unnecessarily limiting yourself from the get-go by not being born with that sort of capacity for appealing to a much larger consumer market from the get-go. I think that's a great way to wrap up our chat today with one final question. It sounds like you're very optimistic uh, about the future of Australia and related opportunities. I mean, how, what are you envisioning for the future of how uh, our place in Asia and the future of Australia-Asia relations? And going back to the core of our discussion and the podcast, which is about Asia-capable individuals, what is some advice that you could give to Australians in terms of constructing a successful Asia-capable career, no matter which stage of their career they're in now? Great question. Um, I see, first of all, let me congratulate you on launching this podcast and say just how much I admire your continued passion and energy that you bring to Australia's engagement with Asia. It is so inspiring to see someone like you forging a career that has been in Asia and Australia, to take all that natural passion and capability to bringing these insights to a much broader audience and like trying to drive this agenda in ways that are so meaningful. So like all kudos to you. And I so deeply admire and respect that. So thank you. Secondly, um, how to build a career. I'm going to come back to what we often talk about in AsiaLink, and that is I always think about an Asia-capable career as being a combination of having insights, capability, and connections. And in brief, insights means constantly building the knowledge, not just doing a degree and going, yeah, yeah, I know, but, you know, reading widely, engaging engaging with everything from the news to literature to history, building that knowledge, um, current affairs, and the insight necessary to be credible in the region, whatever you're doing and at whatever point in your career. Secondly, building that capability. So we've been talking today a lot about culture, about language, about on-the-ground experience, actually being conscious constantly that capability is not um, a static thing. It's a dynamic evolving thing. You know, whether it's topping up your language capability or deeply understanding and investing in um, digital capability, as I have late in my career, that constant kind of building with a foundation and a focus through the lens of cultural capability and Asia capability is essential. And lastly, the connections. It's all about relationships. At the end of the day, you know, we have a relationship. Thank goodness. Um, it's about finding the people, finding the excitement, building those relationships on the ground and then nurturing them. 
people always forget you can go to any networking event. It's not about a networking event. It's about building long-term beneficial, trusted relationships that you can call on over time. And it's about actually investing, you know, the time and the confidence in those relationships that is going to pay off um, for you personally and professionally. So I'll leave it there. Well, it's been wonderful to speak with you today, Penny, and I look forward to catching up in person, whether it's back in Australia or in Asia. Absolutely. Thanks, Lucy, for the opportunity. Thank you. Cloud Asia is now on Substack. Subscribe at cloudasia.substack.com or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like this episode, please share it with someone who would also enjoy it. You can also find us on Instagram and LinkedIn as Clout Asia. Thank you for listening. See you next time.